Good morning. Praise God for these times together to worship Him. It is a joy to, uh, to be together again every week. As I was just talking with my son this morning about how every Sunday is a resurrection day, essentially, as we've talked about recently with Easter, that every Sunday we get to rejoice in the truths of the resurrection. Every Sunday we get to be freshly reminded of the gospel uh, in which we believe that we've trusted in the good news of Jesus, that he has died, been buried, and been raised again. And that in him we've been raised to newness of life, as Paul says in Romans 6. And one day we will be raised to eternal glory in our bodies. That's what we're here to consider. That's what we're here to celebrate every Sunday. And so I hope that the lethargy and distractedness of our minds would be transformed through this singing and praying and preaching and all this to those Christian realities. One of the most well-known prayers in the Bible is the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. We covered this a couple of years ago when, uh, when I first arrived here, three years ago in June. Uh, that was where, where the church was. The church was in the Gospel of John. In fact, I picked up at John 15, 1. So it was very shortly thereafter that I got to, I had the privilege of being able to preach through John 17. And what a wonderful chapter that is, but that's the high priestly prayer, uh, as it's been historically called, of Jesus. And it is prayed in front of his disciples and in the last hours before he goes to the cross. So those, the last hours that Jesus has with his disciples before he is to die on the cross, be arrested and then suffer and die on the cross. And one of his petitions to the Father on behalf of his followers, comes in verse 5 of John 17. And he says this, he prays this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This is the Lord Jesus praying to the Father. I do not ask that, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That was at the forefront of Christ's mind as he was about to leave his disciples there and go to the cross, that they would be protected from the devil, from the evil one. And the apostle Peter, interestingly, who heard Jesus pray this prayer, would later write, a number of years later, he would write this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I can't help but to think that the prayer of Christ was in the mind of Peter as he wrote these words, as he heard the Lord essentially say to the Father, protect Peter from the devil. Protect Andrew and John, Matthew, all of them from the devil. Protect Lonnie from the devil. Put your name there. Protect them from the devil. The truth is that there is an enemy, an evil one, a devil. He is real. He is a real being. He exists. He is personal, and he is active. He is active in the lives of people. He is active in world events. He's active in our neighborhoods. He's active in our families. He's active in our individual day-to-day -day choices and habits. He's active in, among our church. He's active in Noonan. He's active in the USA. He's active all over the world, even now, at this moment. Hence the need to be sober-minded and watchful. And that's exactly what Peter says. What is the response of the reality that Satan exists and that he's active and he's powerful, he's personal? What is the application of that or the implication of that? It is simply be sober-minded and be watchful. And so just before we go any further, is that the, the overall attitude of our hearts as Christians? I remember when I was in seminary reading uh, how John Piper describes the Christian life. I believe the, the idea I, I encountered it was in Let the Nations Be Glad, a book about missions. 
and he talked about a wartime walkie-talkie. That prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. That we're in war. This is battle. The Christian life is not a stroll. It's not just an easy, nice little sort of inner tube ride down the lazy river. It is battle, warfare, and it requires that we be sober-minded and watchful. So I think we can say, we can deduce from that, that if we sort of wander around our lives in the Christian life, we just sort of go about it and, and, and don't discipline our bodies and discipline our time, that we are, in a sense, already beginning to be devoured in ways we don't even see. Remember, Satan's crafty. He doesn't devour us uh, in a way that we just say, ouch! We, we, don't, we don't feel it like that initially. In fact, it's a long time before we say, ouch, from the devil's bites. But eventually we do say, ouch, and by the time we say, ouch, perhaps it's too late. We have recently been introduced to this figure at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, which is what we're in now as a church. We've recently been introduced to him. He is the tempter who threw the instrument of a serpent, a snake, deceived Eve and initiated the fall of human beings into sin. So we get the introduction of this character, this figure, right here at the very beginning of the Bible. And we're going to see him pop up throughout the pages of Scripture. We're going to see him in the divine court in the book of Job, saying, have you considered this Job, that he would turn? Well, God says, have you considered Job? And Satan says, he would turn on you in a moment if you took all these blessings away from him. He doesn't love you or worship you, God. We see him in various places in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we begin to see him there very clearly in the forefront of the pages of Scripture. As demons are being cast out by Jesus, and as Satan takes at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and tempts him, we see Satan tempting Jesus throughout his ministry. But all of that goes back to Genesis 3, where we see him introduced in these very first verses of this chapter. And Revelation 12, 9, which I've already referred to when we started this chapter, refers to this fallen angel, which we talked about then, as that he was Lucifer, as he was, he, he was a, the morning star. He was one of God's greatest creations, most beautiful angels. He fell from heaven because of his pride. And in Revelation 12, 9, he's referred to in this way. The great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So why do we begin this morning by focusing on the devil? I mean, there are a number of other things we could have focused on, especially to sort of glide into the sermon, right? Why do we begin with the devil at the very beginning of this sermon? Well, that is exactly what, we're, what we have going on when we come to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. So if you will go there in your Bibles, Genesis 3, verses 14 to 15. The devil takes center stage here in this moment. Although, as we study through this, we're going to see that the devil really is not at the center of this at all. He never is. He's never at the center. But it becomes a springing, he becomes a springing off point. It's like his head is a trampoline. And just bouncing off of him to point the reader to the great realities of Scripture. So verses 14 and 15. So far in Genesis 3, just to give a little recap, we have seen the deadly dialogue. That was the first five verses. Verses 1 to 5, we had the deadly dialogue. What's going on there? We have Satan tempting Eve to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness. We see Eve already in her own heart beginning to buy into those lies. We see the corruption of her own heart has already begun to take shape. And then in verses 6 to 8, we have the deadly deed itself. We have Eve, in the desires of her heart, taking from the, the tree, taking that fruit from the tree God had commanded them not to eat, eating it, giving it to Adam. He eats from it, and then we see the immediate effect of that. And the reason I treated verses 7 and 8 together with verse 6 is because I want you to see the immediate effect of what happens. When they eat, immediately, they begin to cover themselves, to conceal themselves, to hide from the face of God. And let me just say this, that is at the heart 
of a, of, of a sinner. At the heart of a sinner is a desire to run from God, to hide from God, to not be with God, which is why when we become Christians, at the heart of that, at the center of that reality of being a Christian is this desire to run to God, to grab hold of God, as Jesus says, to abide in him to cling to him. That's at the center of what it means to be a Christian, just as to run from God, to hide from God, is at the center of what it means to be a sinner. And so after verse 8, we came to verses 9 to 13 with the divine interrogation, and we have God gently and lovingly as a father seeking the heart. He comes to Adam and Eve and begins to question them. And what, is, what, it, what comes of the humans as we see God questioning them? They shift the blame, and they fail to repent. In fact, uh, John MacArthur has commented that uh, an inability to repent is what it means to be totally depraved. That in our depravity as human beings, we can't repent. What you're seeing in Adam and Eve as God comes to them is you're seeing their bondage to non-repentance, their bondage to not being penitent over their sin. And so that's what we have in verses 9 to 13, the divine interrogation. So all of that's just a little bit of review. Maybe if you haven't been following what we've been doing and just to get you up to speed or for those of us who just constantly need to be reminded of, of the context for what it is, we, which is all of us really, of what we're looking at, that just gives you, uh, that sets the scene really. And so verses 14 to 15 is what we're going to look at today. And as we come to these verses, we get the defeated devil. That's the reason I started by highlighting the devil is because in these verses, we see the devil defeated. God turns to the serpent, the instrument of Satan, and he pronounces a curse. And what's interesting here is many people have commented on this, that when God comes to Adam and Eve, what does he do with them? He asks questions. He is shepherding them towards repentance. He is, he is coming to them as a loving father. He asks Satan nothing. He has nothing to ask Satan. Satan will not repent. His heart is entirely consumed with darkness and evil. There is no grace for the devil. He has been consigned to darkness and eternal hell. No grace for him whatsoever. So God asks him nothing. He simply comes and begins to pronounce a curse on Satan. So here we have the sentencing of Satan that tells us of his ultimate defeat. Not just his sentencing, but it is meant to point the hearer and the reader to the fact that this Satan who is being sentenced by the judge will ultimately be defeated. And one of the things we'll talk about as we go through this morning is how that is meant to impact Adam and Eve and how that should impact us as we read it. So go ahead with me. Let's stand in honor of God's word and let's read Genesis 3, 14 to 15. And actually, just to set the stage a little bit for us. I'm going to start reading in verse 9, and we're going to go through verse 15. This is God's holy word. So verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, no question. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. Go ahead and be seated, please. You know, when we, um, sometimes when I'm doing catechism with our son, we get to number 20, and it says, who is the Redeemer? And it's amazing when you go through those catechism questions, because it's like you're kind of climbing a mountain. You're talking about sin. You talk, you talk about the Ten Commandments. You talk about sin and the, that we deserve punishment. You talk about the definition of sin, the definition of idolatry. And then uh, it asks the question of can we receive? Is there escape from God's punishment? And the answer is yes. We need a redeemer. And then one of the things we do is we do a little drum roll because that leads to the question, who is the redeemer? The only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've come to the mountain peak when you have that reality. The Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, this is a mountain peak verse that we come to here, verse 15. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his grace. Let's ask that he would help us to focus this morning and to receive his word, that he would give me the grace to communicate clearly what's here and all of us the grace to listen, not only with our ears, but with our hearts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are a holy God. You are the holy God. We bow before you this morning. We know that in reality we very frequently do not bow before you in the way we live, the way we think, the things we say. Father, would you forgive us? But we ask that you would be more and more hallowed in our lives, that your name would be made great, that we would shine to those who do not know you, that they would see difference in our lives and that they would be drawn to Christ, our Savior, our head. Father, we ask that you would establish your rule over our church more and more and over each of us. Father, we pray that you would meet us at our point of need. We know our greatest need is the bread of heaven. We know our greatest need is your word as we come to see your son in his glory and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, thank you for meeting our greatest need. And we know, God, if you have met, as Paul says in Romans 8 at the end, if you have met our greatest need in Christ, will you not graciously give us all things? So, Father, help us trust you. Many of us here this morning are being tempted by this very same devil we're talking about not to trust your goodness, not to trust your word, not to run to you, but instead to run away from you, to hide our face from your face. Father, we ask that you would help us meet our needs, and more than that, would you direct us back to yourself in trust. Help us trust you as our Father. Father, we pray for forgiveness of our sins. We ask that you would bring them to mind even this morning that we might repent of them. Father, we pray that you would minister to each of us, especially at the depths of our hearts, where there are many sins we don't even know about. Would you bring to mind secret sins? Father, would you just have mercy on us as you, as you do your healing work in us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would protect us from sinning even today and that you would protect us from the devil. We know that he, as we have just discussed, is desiring to dismantle our lives. And Father, we know that he is very crafty, he's very cunning, he's very wise and deceptive. And Father, we cannot stand against him in our own strength. We will fall every time. So Father, we pray that we would stand against him in your strength, in the power of your might, that we would put on the full armor of God, that we would be ready to do battle every moment, that we would utilize our wartime walkie-talkie, that we would stand watchful and vigilant over our homes and over our church. Father, we pray that you would give us this mindset. We need it more and more every day. Would you help us, Lord, we ask. Minister this portion of Scripture to our hearts this morning in ways that even surprise us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, he is a real devil, a powerful devil. 
an active devil, but here in this passage we see the very beginnings of the fact that he is a defeated devil. How often we need to be reminded of that. He is a defeated devil. There are three things I want to consider this morning as we look at these two verses. First, the sentencing sovereign. Second, the slithering serpent. And then finally, the slaying seed. Those are three entry points, really, for us to understand what's going on in these two verses as we consider the devil's defeat and the hope that that gives for the human race. So first, the sentencing sovereign. Some of you will remember that last week we began looking at the divine interrogation, as I just mentioned a moment ago, by considering the character of the questioner. Remember last week we looked at two things as we, as we came to those verses 9 to 13. We looked at the character of the questioner and the condition of the sinner. But as we came to the character of the questioner, we thought about the manner of God's questioning, the way in which God asked questions to Adam and Eve, and the nature of the questions themselves. As God is trying to shepherd them towards repentance, he is trying to highlight for them by the very questions themselves, he is trying to highlight for them what they're, what's really going on in their souls. They're even deceived. They think that the reason that they are hiding is because of, the reason they're ashamed is because of their nakedness, but they fail to see that it is because of their disobedience to God. And so we see, we begin to see just by the nature of these questions, we begin to see some things about God. Well, the same is true today. As we come to God's judgment, his sentencing, his pronouncing of curses and consequences, we learn more about the Lord God. As we've said many times, the Bible's about God. And as we go through, one of the ways we should always read the Bible is ask the question, what does this tell me about God? That should always be our first question. Our second question should be, what does this tell me about his Christ? What does this tell me about God? And then secondly, what does this tell me about his Christ? And really, there's no better passage to come to in the Old Testament than what we have here. So we find the same thing here. God's character is being set forth. And what do we learn here about God? Many things, but most fundamentally, I want us to see that we learn that God is sovereign. We see that throughout the pages of Scripture, but this is one of the great truths that we find in, this, in these two verses, that God is sovereign. He is the ruler of all. He is entirely in control of all. He is sovereign. And I think we see this sovereignty of God in a few ways. So I just want to walk through those with you briefly here. Ways in which we see the sovereignty of God just in these two verses alone. The first thing that we see is God's sovereignty over all things, from animals to angels, from the very bottom all the way to the top. We've already seen this at the very beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything, but he also created not everything, just everything seen, but he created everything unseen. So from the serpent to Satan who uses the serpent, to Adam and Eve, what we find here is a God who rules over everything and everyone. We see this in his role as judge. Only the judge who is supreme can be said to be sovereign. This judge is absolutely sovereign. So we see that just in his role as judge, but we also see it in the fact that his judgment is final. Do you notice that? Who responds to God in this passage? Nobody. Nobody responds to God. Satan doesn't say anything back to God. Adam doesn't say anything back. Eve doesn't say anything back. It is, as Paul says in Romans 3, every mouth is stopped and everyone is held accountable to God. I want to quickly just show you this, just let you see briefly what I'm saying. Look at verse 14. I'll go quickly just so you can get the sense. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. Done. No response. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Period. No response. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. There you go. Absolutely no response. Every mouth is stopped before God. Why? Because there is no one to whom they can appeal. He's king, he's ruler, he's sovereign God. There is no speaking back to this God. There's no talking back to him. There's no, well, let me go above you and see if maybe this judgment that you've placed on us can be reversed. Or let me snarl at you and shake my fist at you. No, the sense is falling on your face before God as the sovereign judge. And I want to just say this for our own consideration and edification. There is no appeal for us when it comes to God's judgment. We need to be reminded of that frequently, especially this morning if you're among us and you don't know the Lord, you're not a Christian. You can deceive yourself into thinking that your sin is quite fine, and you can begin to erect a a standard for yourself that you're meeting. But here's the thing. When you stand before God one day, his judgment is gonna be perfect and accurate and true. And you may think now that you can bring to God this appeal, that you're gonna be able to bring to God a response to him whereby you're going to point out all the things that you have done right, so to speak, in your own mind. No, God will pronounce his judgment and it will be final. And not only will it be final in the sense that there's no one else with whom you can speak, but it will be final in the sense that it will be eternal. There's no turning back. There's no coming back from it. He is the final say. And by the way, he's already told us the basis for judgment. It's in his word, the Bible. He's already given us all that we need to know to understand by what measure he will judge us, perfection. And the the means by which we will escape his judgment, Christ crucified. He's already communicated this to us in his word. God determines what is cursed and what is blessed. God determines what is right and what is wrong. God determines what is innocent and what is guilty. And he tells us that in his word. He is sovereign. We see that in these verses. We also see God's sovereignty not just in rendering judgment, but in his enforcement of that judgment. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 15. See, in in the U.S., we have the judicial branch, we have the executive branch, the legislative branch. We have a differentiation between these two. Judges can lay down a judgment, but they just have on a robe. (laughs) They don't have a a sword, so to speak. They don't have a a gun. They don't have jails. They They have to exercise and enforce their ruling. That has to be exercised and enforced by executive powers to actually make the judgment effective for the judged. That's not the case with God. He is sovereign not just in laying down judgment, but he is sovereign in enforcing that judgment. Look at verse 15. Look at the words. I will put enmity. I will do this. And in verse 16 to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply. We see his sovereignty not just in overseeing the judgment, but he actually takes it all the way throughout the lives of the judged. We see God's sovereignty over the events of history and the final outcome. So in verse 15, what does it say? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These are not possibilities. Notice that. He's sovereign over this. He shall do this. 
And you shall do this. This will happen. God is saying, I am the author of history. I am the one who ordains and decrees and oversees and puts into effect. This will happen. Not a possibility. God is sovereign. Finally, we see God's sovereignty even over evil. This is one of the great struggles of philosophers and one of the great difficulties for many is trying to understand how there can be evil in the world, the good and powerful God. And some, I think, maybe overstep their bounds even in trying to speak for God on this question when God has given us, has not specifically answered some of these questions that philosophers so desire to put an answer on. But what we see here, I think, at a, at a bare minimum, is we see God's sovereignty over evil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what that tells us? Nothing that happens in this great struggle of history is outside of God's control. Notice that. Nothing will be outside of God's control. The devil's hostility towards humanity Enmity, that hostility towards humanity is itself underneath the sovereign rule of God, including bruising the heel of the seed. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But that's essentially what happens to Christ on the cross. And Acts chapter 2, Peter is very clear that God himself ordained that that would happen to Christ. The most evil event, imagine the worst thing you've ever read in the news. The worst thing you've ever encountered, it's not as evil as this. The most evil thing that's ever happened in the world is the crucifying of Christ. He's the only person who's ever lived that is truly innocent. He's God in flesh. And on the cross, Christ was beaten, nailed, mocked, killed. This is the most evil event in the history of humankind. And Acts chapter 2 is very clear that this was under the sovereign control of Almighty God. We can't explain that. It's difficult to understand. But what we have here is even in these verses, these verses are telling us that God is sovereign over evil. That nothing that happens in this world escapes His sovereign control. And this tells us something very important as Christians. There's not a devil on the loose who can do with us as he pleases. There is not an enemy with a target on you who can just fire away however and whenever he would like. He is under the sovereignty of God. All of the bruises that Satan inflicts on you are fully under the sovereign control of your loving and omnipotent Heavenly Father. How often we need to be reminded of that when we're going through times of intense temptation, right? We're going through times of intense sorrow and struggle and loss and fear and anxiety, and we just feel beat down by life. And we feel as though we are engaged in a a strong struggle against the devil and against his forces, and there's darkness in our lives. We need to be reminded of this truth, that God is sovereign even over that. We see this with Job. We see this with Paul. Paul is being basically hounded by some sort of evil spirit. And he prays to God. He prays to Christ. Take this away from me. And Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you. God is sovereign even over that demonic activity working on Paul, which he hated Whatever it was, he hated, he wanted to get rid of it. God, take this away from me. Get this out of my life. It hurts. I don't want it. Even Paul, so strong in God, prayed that way. God said, no, it's the way it's going to be. And I'm sovereign over that in your life. The same God is our Father. The same God we call Abba. So the sovereignty of God is clear in these verses, but now we need to dig a little deeper 
into the content of God's judgment. So we have the sentencing sovereign. We need to see that. It's very important for us to set the stage for what we'll read throughout the Bible. But now we come to the slithering serpent. The slithering serpent. So what are we to make of this judgment on the serpent? This might seem a little strange. I don't know, you've read this passage before and you've thought, you know, there are many passages we come to and we read them and go, okay, and we just keep going. We don't really know what's going on there. We, we haven't figured it out. It's a little bit strange, lots of question marks. So we just kind of keep going. On we go. Well, let's think about it for a moment. What are we to make of its judgment, God's judgment on the serpent? We've already seen from the New Testament texts, many New Testament texts, that the culprit here is not really the irrational animal. The irrational animal, and the animal is in fact irrational. You get some weird stuff in the church fathers. Where they talk about, you know, the, they, they, they characterize the serpent as being this different kind of creature that's actually a rational creature speaking to uh, Adam and Eve. So you actually have a unique creature here. I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. It's, it's an animal. It's one of the beasts of the field, one of the animals on the land. It's an irrational animal. But you have... Behind it, a rational angel. It is Satan who uses the serpent as an instrument to carry out his evil purposes. So that leads to the question, poor serpent, right? Why is the serpent cursed? I mean, he's just kind of an innocent bystander. Why is he cursed? Maybe you feel at this moment you want to vindicate this serpent. Why him? Well, I think there are two ways to come at this question. First, we see other places where animals are judged due to harm inflicted on humans. This communicates the dignity of humanity. So when animals are involved in the harming of humans, especially the killing of humans, we see that God renders a judgment on the animal. So Genesis 9:5, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast, and I will require it from man. Exodus 21:28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, for the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Here we see a, a judgment on the animal because it's inflicted a, a death blow to a human being who is made in the image of God. And in fact, in Genesis 9, we get that explicit language later that the reason that humans are to be held responsible and animals are to be held responsible for killing a human being is because human beings are made in the image of God. But it goes beyond that. Leviticus 20, 15, 16, if a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So I think that's one way of coming at the question is you have here the death, right? I mean, this is the death, the beginning of death. This is the death that led to all other deaths. We'll read later in Genesis. And Adam died. He became dust again. And everyone after that in the genealogies of Genesis, and he died, and he died. And the reason that all the other deaths happen in all of the world is because Adam and Eve died when they disobeyed the Lord. So that's one way, I think, of coming at the question. The second, I think, is more important, and it's this. The serpent becomes a symbol of Satan. This is more important. The serpent becomes a symbol of Satan. You might say, well, that's kind of mean, the serpent. The serpent doesn't know what's happening to it. It's not rationally capable of meditating on its experiences, on its past and its future. It's an animal. But what we have here is God is sovereignly ordaining that the serpent would be a symbol of Satan. The effect of the curse on the animal symbolizes the effect on Satan. And that tells us this. This is very interesting. I haven't thought about that in this until this week. Every time we see a snake, it should remind us of the gospel. That's incredible. Every time we see a snake slithering around, we should be reminded. Poisonous or not, poisonous or not, every time we see a snake, we should be reminded of Satan's demise. 
through Christ. And we'll get to that more specifically in a moment. The manner of the serpent's movement on its belly with its face in the dust and the hostility that exists between humans and snakes, all of this serves as a picture of Satan's fate. As a side note, one of the questions that is typically asked here is, did serpents walk around before the curse? Maybe that's a question that you have asked yourself because God says now, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat. So not literally eat dust, snakes don't eat dirt, but on your belly you shall go and your face essentially is there in the dirt. So the question is, well, before this, did serpents walk around like other kinds of animals? And this is a question that many people have entertained and have disagreed on, on whether or not the serpent was of a different uh, physical makeup prior to this curse. And did the curse that God put on the serpent itself, did it, did it create a, a, a new anatomy for the serpent? Going back all the way to Josephus, he's uh, writing in the first century. He's a historian, a Jewish historian, really the great Jewish historian. He's reflecting back, much like the Romans did, with people like Livy and Tacitus, reflecting back on the history of, of their people, of the Roman people. Well, here you have Josephus, and he's reflecting back on the history of the Jews, the antiquities of the Jews. He's looking back at the history, and he goes through, and as he gets to this point in his historical construction, he says, yes, that they had feet. Snakes had feet. And this seems to be the plain reading of the text, that there's some kind of difference that occurs here as God puts a curse on the serpent. Others have disagreed. In fact, Calvin did not think this was the case. And many others have tried to understand this passage. I, I think it's more likely, given the way the text reads on the surface, that there was some kind of anatomical change that took place so that there was a real visual shift here and that the animal itself was cursed physically in this way. And one of the clues to this being a possibility is in Revelation 12, 9, the serpent is called this, Satan is called this, the ancient dragon, or he's called the great dragon, that ancient serpent. So the question is why, is, why is Satan referred to as a dragon? Seems to be a different kind of picture than a serpent. And so maybe what, we're, what we have here is an implicit re reference to Satan as some kind of dragon creature prior to the fall and a serpent after the fall, one that slithers on the surface of the ground. Much of this is speculation, we don't know, but it's probably a question that all of us have asked and you can read various commentaries on that and you'll get various different answers. But regardless, regardless of that question, the serpent symbolizes Satan. Satan is brought low in humiliation, he fell from heaven to earth and now he is thrust down even lower into the dust and even more, his mastery over humanity and bringing them to sin by temptation will be turned upside down. Now, Satan will experience a fatal blow to his head by a human foot. Whose foot? Whose foot? And that leads to our final point, the slaying seed. Look at verse 15 again. Whose foot? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse should bring us to a state of amazement. At the goodness and grace of God, especially we, when we consider that these words were spoken for Adam and Eve. These words are meant to bring consolation and comfort to the listening ears of Adam and Eve. Throughout the history of the church, these words have been regarded as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel Calvin puts it this way. He says, 
it is worth the while first to observe that the Lord spoke not for the sake of the serpent, but of the man, that God might revive the fainting minds of men and restore them when oppressed by despair. Let me just pause there for a moment. Would you say despair characterizes any of your life? Your walk through physical circumstances? Your walk with God? Despairing? To restore them when oppressed by despair. I go on. It became necessary to promise them in their posterity, victory over Satan through whose wiles they had been ruined. This verse is not a promise, strictly speaking. It's not something that is explicitly addressed to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, this will happen. I promise you this will happen. It's not, it's not couched in those terms. It is a, a, a specific statement to Satan as part of his curse, as part of his judgment. But what we need to see is that it's an indirect promise. It, is really, it really constitutes a promise made to Adam and Eve that this serpent would be defeated, this ancient serpent. These were life-giving words to the first couple because they promised that the devil would be defeated through a future human offspring. His head would be bruised or crushed and you can't really translate this crush, I mean, because it's the same verb. In Hebrew, it's the same verb. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. It's the same word. Some people put crush. Some translators have put crush in the first line and bruise in the second. I think there's a problem with that because it's the same verb. But what we have there is one goes towards the head and one goes towards the heel which means that in the case of the head, there is ruin, there is a fatality. So we could say crushed in terms of understanding it. But in translating it, it's bruise. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. But his head would be bruised. Humankind would live on in victory over their foe. And by implication, they would gain victory over the effects of the fall. Do you see now how this is really a first gospel this is really the first instance of the good news that, that Satan would be defeated, that the devil would be defeated by a future human offspring. And in the defeating of the devil, we're not just talking about the devil defeated and that's it, oh, a, a fallen world without the devil, but it's meant to bring us back before that first verse of chapter three, when this crafty serpent began to talk with Eve. The destruction of the devil does not just point to a fallen world without the devil. It points to a world that has transcended its fallenness. And that is why here, just in this verse alone, we have what has been called the first gospel. Going back to a time before the serpent did his evil work. Many of you know the hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is our God. This is what it says, partially in that song. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Why? 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 How can Martin Luther sing those words? A, a little human being against an angel of God. Fallen, still an angel. How? How can one word fail him? This prince of darkness grim. How can we not tremble at him? How can we not be filled with fear at the mere thought of being attacked by Satan in our lives, our families being attacked, our children being attacked by Satan? How can we not tremble? Why? Because of the seed. 
because of the he of Genesis 3, verse 15. Notice what it says. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now one could potentially translate this it, but one of the indications that we don't translate this pronoun, this Hebrew pronoun, it, that we translated he, is even as early as the Septuagint, which is centuries before. It's the, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Centuries before Christ. In the Greek version, they translate this word with a Greek masculine pronoun, altos. It means he, he, not it. So that even centuries before Christ, there is the, there is the understanding among, among Jewish, Jewish exegetes, among Jewish translators from Hebrew into Greek, that this is a promise of one, of one man, born of woman. Not just general, vague seed, it, this seed, this offspring, this, this it, but a he, one man will do this bruising, this crushing. So here's the question given to us at the very beginning of the Bible. Who is the he? You see that? It's amazing. We have our hermeneutics right here. We, our hermeneutics means how we interpret and understand the Bible. Our hermeneutical uh, basis, our hermeneutical grid, the pointer for how we read our Bible is right here. Who's the he? From Genesis to Revelation, that's the question of the reader of the Bible. That is the question for you and your family, for our church. Who is the he? It's funny. It's interesting to me that when we get to Noah, I think this gives us a little hint at the expectation. When we get to Noah, chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, listen to this. This is, this is interesting. When Noah's born, his father... It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, that's Noah's, Noah's dad, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, listen to, what, listen to what Lamech says about Noah. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What's that about? That's interesting. That should make you go, hmm. What is going on there? And I think that there is a sense of expectation on the people who, who worship God, who call upon God. We see that language in Genesis. In the line of Seth, those who call upon God, there's this sense of expectation. Who's the he? Who's the he? Who's the he? Maybe it's Noah. Maybe it's my son Noah. Who knows why he had that sense? We know that Noah was, seemed like maybe he's the he. He's righteous. God saves him and his family alone in all of the world. Kind of like the he. But no. Noah is not the he. And so the search continues. Throughout the pages of Genesis. Throughout the pages of the Pentateuch. The books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Throughout the pages of all of Scripture. The search for the he continues. Who is the ruler who will come from the line of Judah? Genesis 49. Who is the prophet like Moses? Deuteronomy 18. Who is the son of David who will rule forever on his throne? All prophecy begins here in the search for the he. Who is the he? And then, we come to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Listen, born of woman. You see that? Born of woman. This is woman, Eve. Not called Eve yet, by the way. I've been calling her Eve. Maybe that's a little anachronistic. I should go back. She's not Eve yet. She's the woman. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. Listen to this. That through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ destroys the devil. He is the he. As Christians, that is our great confession. Christ is the ancient he. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. You see that kind of definitive language. Oh, Jesus came, and and we we, we think all these general things about Jesus' coming. That's why he came, because he's the he, and he came to destroy the devil, to crush the head of Satan. That's the reason he came. And when did Christ do this devil-crushing? This devil bruising, this devil defeating work on the cross, as Hebrews says, through death he destroyed. Through death. Jesus didn't come blazing from heaven with a sword. Peter tried that in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus rebuked him. Peter was ready to defeat Satan and his seed, as Jesus will refer to people being children of the devil. We have the seed of Satan essentially in all those who hate God who love evil, Peter wants to destroy the seed of Satan with the sword. And Jesus says, no, I've come to destroy him by dying in the place of sinners, to make sinners right with God. That is how Jesus destroys the devil. It's incredible. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was wounded on the cross. His heel essentially bruised, right? Not a death blow. He did die. But then on the third day, he rose from the dead. You see, Jesus was not permanently snuffed out. Satan will be permanently destroyed in the lake of fire one day. As we learn at the end of Revelation, he will be thrown in the lake of fire, and there he will spend eternity, never to inflict pain, suffering, temptation on human beings ever again through Christ the he. I'll leave us with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace. Listen to the, listen to the language that goes back to Genesis 3. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see that? Have you ever noticed that before in Romans? Just at the very end there, you probably died out before you got to that point because in Romans 16, there's all those names. So maybe you thought, done, <laughs> done with Romans. You got to chapter 15, and you thought this is really edifying. You got 60. Okay, next book. Well, if you read on, you persevere a little, you get to verse 20, you get these wonderful words that bring us back to Genesis 3.15. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Christians. Under your feet, Christians. Hold on a second. I'm not the he. Christ is the he. What's he talking about there? What he's talking about is that for all those who are in Christ, for all those who call Christ head, Satan is under our feet. Satan has been crushed by Christ Jesus, and he is daily crushed in the righteous trust in God of the believer. He's crushed by each of us when we say, no, devil, by Christ, no, And we fight against sin. We fight against temptation. We seek to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. In that, Satan is crushed under our feet. And one day, the Roman Christians, when Paul wrote this to the Romans, he wrote it in the 50s. What's interesting is just a decade later, Roman, the Roman Christians would suffer under one of the most vile and horrific persecutions that the church had ever seen under the emperor Nero. He would take Christians and dip them in tar and light them on fire so they'd be burned alive. He would feed them to lions and bears and other kinds of animals in the amphitheater. He would crucify them upside down, behead them. Paul was killed during this time. Peter was killed during this time. They would suffer greatly. But the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Those words rang in their minds as, as they were being chased by lions and lit on fire. And those words are meant to ring in the ears of every Christian. Then, now, and until the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our foe has been defeated through Christ, the he. God, would we trust him? Would we live in his power, not our own, knowing that in our power we have nothing? Father, help us trust Christ. Help us abide in him that he might do battle on our behalf every day. Help us to repent this morning of our sins. Help us to find fresh strength through this majestic, conquering he. It's in his name we pray. Amen.